It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I learned a new word this morning when I came in and I was talking with Doug. Sansei. Sansei. If you didn't know, I am Sansei. Yes. My wife's like, what's Sansei? That is third generation, half Japanese. On my mother's side, my mother's name was Kikuye Nakamura from Nagasaki, born in 1939. Uh, She was there when the bomb dropped in 43. I was telling John this morning about that. And uh, she came over when she met my father, who was stationed in Okinawa in 68. Uh, and they met, they fell in love, and uh, we've, they moved back when my father finished his touring, and uh, I was born and raised in Detroit. Uh, we moved out here in Chicago. Yeah, is, I got a Detroit, a, a Detroit player out here. Yeah, all right. Go Detroit. From Detroit. Moved out here in 2009, May of 2009, and it is, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I didn't understand that Lakeside had such a contingent of ethnic Japanese. I, I didn't understand the, heris- the, the history behind it. I got a little taste of that. I saw some of the pictures. Uh, Doug gave me a little tour of the history, this piece of art right back here. Uh, so really appreciate all of those things. It's a huge surprise, really a pleasant surprise. Very cool that we share that in common. Unexpected, unexpected. But even more than that, what I did expect, what I fully expected in arriving here this morning is that we would have Christ in common. Christ, that we would share him that he is the reason why we we're all compelled to get out of bed, to roll up here this morning to offer worship to Jesus. That's why we're here, to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes our worship here this morning uh, a matter of great privilege. It is a great privilege to worship, but it also brings with it a degree of seriousness. There is a deep sobriety in what we're doing here this morning because as we have been singing, Christ paid it all that we might be washed white as snow, that we might show up here clean and undefiled. It is an absolute miracle what is taking place here. It is a miracle that anybody could walk through these doors and be washed clean, not by the doors, not by the gathering, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus paid the highest possible cost that we might have this chance meeting, that we might get to know each other, discover the things that we have in common. But above all things, it's Christ. He is what we have in common. We we just read this morning in 2 Samuel 24 that David understood that there was a cost that he had to pay in order to offer right worship to this God of ours. He was not unwilling to offer worship to God that cost him nothing. He understood that. He understood that. And that is why God accepted his offering, and that is why the plea was averted from from the land because he understood that he had to pay a price, right? We had to pay. We all have to pay a price. The highest price a person may have to pay is their life. 
it may cost someone their life to worship the Lord Jesus Christ today. Probably not in this country, but somewhere in the world that may happen. It's a high price. We, we probably won't ever know that, Lord willing. But someone's paying it. Worship is costly. Nevertheless, we all pay a price. And as we see in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, this is our sermon text for this morning. So if you haven't had an opportunity, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and we are going to read, if you would follow along as I read the first four verses of chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, in the day, this is a pretty mundane scene. In a moment in time, Herod's temple in the day of Christ was a very complex temple. There were lots of rooms, lots of chambers, lots of different areas for different forms of worship. And this took place at the treasury. And the treasury had a court just outside of it. And this is where Jesus and his disciples are observing from. And it seems like there's nothing terribly interesting going on to the untrained eye, right? Worship happens. People give money regularly. This is a regular part of worship. It seems mundane, but not to Jesus. He takes notice. He sees the costly worship of the widow. And I think that if we, as we move through this passage, we'll see that the seemingly mundane often gives birth to the extraordinary. The Christian life is often that way. Faithfulness over time in the mundane Christian life gives birth to the extraordinary. And what we see with the widow is that she worships and pays a great cost in that worship, and ultimately her worship points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the main point of this passage, that her worship, her costly worship, directs our hearts and minds to the cross, where Jesus paid it all. And there are many things, I think, that together we can learn through this passage. Um, And so the first thing that I think that I want to talk about that the widow shows us, we're going to have a five-point sermon. The first point is that costly worship is cruciform. Costly worship is cruciform. Cruciform means cross-shaped. It's cross-shaped. Costly worship is cruciform because it hurts. You suffer through it. It's painful. And it's painful because it follows the example that Jesus set for us. You guys know what it's like to see people give money in an offering plate. No one ever observes someone give a penny and think, wow, that person gave more than everyone else. Because we're not God. We see with the flesh, we see with the eyes, 
A penny's not going to impress anybody, I think, if we're being honest with ourselves. In fact, she didn't even give a penny. But Jesus notices it. He notices it. And he begins to explain how it is that a poverty-stricken widow outgives the rich in the offering plate. If you look in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now when Jesus begins a sentence with a word like truly... That means he's about to say something profoundly true, and we need to stop, we need to park, and we need to understand what it is that Jesus wants us to learn and know. So what is it about the costly worship that the widow is performing that we need to pay attention to? Well, for starters, in the eyes of Christ, her two small copper coins outweighed everyone else's offering put together. Most commentators would agree with that. When you add up everything in the scales, all of the rich offerings, the folks who were giving out of their abundance, compared to the two small copper coins, the scales tipped to the widow's side, according to the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. How does that happen? Well, the thing that makes her offering so weighty obviously has nothing to do with the amount of money. That's not it at all. From Jesus' perspective, it's really all about what's left in the tank after she gives. Right? This is a, a very popular sports analogy. I know John likes sports. He understands that people say they leave it all on the field when they play. When you, when you play, your heart's out. Uh, in a game, a sport of any kind, you say, I left it all on the field. That's what the widow does. She leaves it all in the field. That's what counts. In verse 4, Jesus says, she put in all that she had to live on. All of it. Everything that she had. That's cruciform. That's cruciform, costly worship, giving until there's nothing left. She gives until it hurts. The rich, on the other hand, they gave out of their abundance. I would put myself in that category, by the way. I put myself in that category. This is the way that it reads. They are giving generously, but it's not about that. Understand that Jesus is not correcting stingy giving here. He's simply pointing out the cruciform worship of the widow by contrasting her worship to the rich who also happen to be giving at the same time. They're all together in the temple. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're giving to the drudgery box. And again, Jesus is showing us that this contrast is a contrast of what's left over after the giving. This is not a contrast of amounts given. The rich went home and were still rich, right? That's That's why I put myself in this category. I'm not wealthy, right? But but when I give, I still go home to plenty. That's a fact. This is true about me. Regardless of whether or not my offering is generous, and I pray that it is, I still go home to very much. My offering wasn't cruciform in the same way. It doesn't hurt in the same way. There was no real pain in the gift, generous or not. But the widow, on the other hand, she gives everything she has until there's nothing left over. There's literally nothing for her to go home to. That's cruciform. That's cruciform. 
Giving money is a form of worship. We do this every Sunday in the church across the world. But this isn't about money. It's about the kind of worship that Jesus is pleased by. And that applies to every aspect of worship, not just the money you give. If all you do is tithe, if that's the full extent of your worship, even if it's a lot of money, as we see here in our text, verse 1, what does it say? Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, if that's all that you do, this is not a rebuke of that. Jesus isn't rebuking generous giving here. But if that's the full extent of your worship, even if it's a lot of money, as we see here with the rich, it's not what Jesus commends. It's not what he commends. It's not what he calls out. It's not what he makes much of. It's not what he's impressed by. Jesus takes notice of the cruciform giving because he wants all of your heart in your worship in every aspect of your worship. So for following the example of the widow, it looks like giving your time and your gifts to him in a way that's so cruciform that there's nothing left over. That there's nothing left over. This is why we cannot have two masters. This is why Jesus is either all or nothing So what are you leaving in the tank after you worship Jesus with your time? Where does it go? What do you do with your energy, your thoughts, your actions, and your resources, and your giftedness? Is there an idol that is siphoning out all of those things from your life? Are you not giving it all to Christ who is demanding your all? That is the Christian life. And it's not that Jesus doesn't expect us to live life. He does. I've got to work, well, not tomorrow, but Tuesday. I've got to go to work on Tuesday. I have to pay my bills. I have to continue to be a dad. I have to continue to be an elder. I have to continue to be a husband. I've got a landscaping job in my backyard. I've got this big mound of dirt sitting in my driveway right now that's calling my name. Every day that mound of dirt calls my name. Jesus doesn't expect me to stop doing those things, but this is not about those things. This is about worship. Can you imagine if we followed the example of the poor widow? To me, that is an exciting thought. If we followed the example of this poor widow, this room would be full. This room would be full. Full, and we would be lifting up the Lord Jesus, that would be the way to expedite the return of Christ. If you long for Christ to come back, if you long for him to sit on his eternal throne so that you could see him face to face, worship like the widow. That'll make it happen. That'll fill the church. The last sinner will walk through the doors. He will return. But this is our call. This is what we got to do, but it's cruciform worship. The running joke in the church is the 80-20 rule, right? You've heard of this? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people? Oh, now I see some heads going, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that rule. Look, 
I hope that's not the case here. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe there's 20% of you who really feel that burden. It's not like that where I come from at Grace Covenant Baptist Church. Not that we can't grow in that area because we all can grow in that area. But the case should never be. It should never be this way. Look to the widow. Look to the cross. It's cruciform. It dies to self. It gives life up for the sake of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. First Peter, you don't have to turn here. I wanted to share First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The reason this is true is because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's Peter. That's what Peter thinks. Faith in the gospel of Christ crucified is what compels and empowers the church into picking up the cruciform cross of worship, of costly worship. It's the gospel that Christ became a man in order to live a perfect, obedient life to the Father and that he willingly gave himself up to die on a cross condemning your sin and my sin in his own flesh and then he was raised for our justification, seated at the right hand of God on his throne. That's the gospel that empowers costly worship. That is the gospel we are called to believe, and the whole world is called to believe. And it is the gospel that empowers the widow to do what she does. But the widow is just a shadow of what Jesus did on the cross. It's what theologians like to call a type. She is a type. This act happened before he was crucified so that when we open up our Bibles, we can see this cruciform costly worship and allow our hearts and our minds to be directed to the cross. She is a type. Now, this is the gospel we preach, what you just heard me say. Christ, born a man, perfect, died on a cross, raised for our justification. If you're new here this morning, if that's the first time you've heard that message, that's the gospel we preach. It is the point and purpose of the widow's sacrifice. It is the gospel. And you, you must believe it, but it doesn't come without a cost. It doesn't come without a cost which is a good segue into our second point, which is costly worship is risky. Costly worship is risky. I was just listening to Doug this morning and his wife talk about the risks they took in moving to a different church, to coming here. That was risky. That took a risk, and you knew it, and you felt it when it happened. What does it take for a poor widow to actually upstage the rich in giving? Well, it takes a really, really big risk. It takes a big risk. We're talking about a poverty-stricken widow here. In Jesus' day, widows were of the most destitute in all of society because they literally had no way to make money for themselves. And there was no social security check coming in the mail. 
right? That, that didn't happen in Israel during Roman occupation. Caesar was not sending social security checks to widows. And they had no way to make money for themselves. And clearly this widow didn't have family to care for her. Or they were at least, according to the law, unfaithful in caring for her. It is the family's duty to care for their widows. She wasn't receiving this. We learn in verse 4, Jesus says, She, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to learn on, live on. And in verse 2, we learn that she's got just these two small copper coins called leptas. Leptas. That's the Greek name. You may have heard of them referred to as mites. You may have referred to the story as the story of the widow's mites. She's got these two small copper coins, and that means that she went home with nothing to live on. That means that she did not know where she was going to get her next meal because she gave it all away. Now, put yourself in her shoes for a minute, or try at least. I don't think, I know that I can't really say that I've ever been in that position. Imagine, if you can, giving all that you have, every cent to your name, whatever that is, and you just show up to church and you put it all in the offering basket, all of it. You have no job. You don't have any family to call on to care for you. You have no way to make any money. That's where this poverty-stricken woman put herself. Because costly worship takes risks. From an outsider looking in, that probably sounds insane. But to the one who's banking on the promises of God is absolutely the thing to do. It's the thing to do. And because she did it, because she took the risk, here it is, captured in Scripture for all of eternity for you to read. (laughs) Because she showed up to church and she put in her two small copper coins. We have an eternal outcome that will never change. That's an incredible outcome when you look at an example of risky worship, an eternal difference for the church to his glory. That's who this widow is. I I can't wait to meet her in heaven. Amen? Yeah. Can't wait to hear the story and get all the details I don't get from Scripture. That's an exciting thought. Jesus, come home. Costly worship is willing to take risks because costly worship trusts in God and banks on his promises of future grace. This is what the widow's doing. Listen to Mark chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but Mark chapter 10, 29 and 30. Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you take these sort of great risks in your worship, 
leaving family and leaving everything behind for the sake of him in worship, then you will suffer persecutions now. That's what the text says. But you will nevertheless be blessed now. Those things that you left behind will be returned to you a hundredfold. And you will even be more eternally blessed in the life to come. How, how is that so? Regardless of what happens to us, regardless of the suffering, the persecutions that, that come our way, you nevertheless will be blessed now because we have each other. We have each other. Fellow citizens in the kingdom of God to share with one another the fellowship of Christ. Wherever you go, the church is there. That's what Jesus meant when he said you would receive now a hundredfold in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. You'll get all that stuff back in the church. In the church. I can drive anywhere in this country and find a people like you, where we, we might not share our Japanese ethnicity and history, uh, but we'll share Christ. That's the thing that brought me here this morning. It wasn't that I'm Japanese. That's just a cool surprise. It's that we share Christ in common. And more than that, Christ has defeated death. And because of that, we will never die. You, Christian, cannot die. And taking big risks in costly worship banks on that promise. You can't die. This body of mine will die, but this soul of mine will live forever, and I will get a new body that will never break down. It will never get sick. And I will worship the way that God created me to worship. And Jesus was no different. He was no different. When he was alive, when he was in the flesh... When he became a man, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 says that as we look to Jesus, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. See that? Jesus, is, was, he was enabled, he was empowered and emboldened to go to the cross for the joy that was set before him. The future promise of God's grace to give him his eternal inheritance, which is all things. That made him joyful. He went to the cross joyful. We must follow the example of the widow and of Jesus. There are many others. I want to share one with you. George Mueller. George Mueller, if you don't know who he is, is a hero of the faith from the 1800s. If you've never heard about him, I would encourage you to go read about him. But like the widow, his risky worship is an incredible example for us to follow. George lived most of his life in Bristol, England, where he was a pastor, well known for his ministry and life, life's work to widows and orphans, especially orphans. In the last 68 years of his ministry, not only did he never ask for money one time from anyone, but he never even took a salary. He never even took a salary. In it all, he relied on God to put it into the hearts of people to help him. He didn't ask anyone. He relied on God to put it in the hearts of people to offer gifts that he might continue on day by day 
week by week, year by year. That is risky worship. It makes me think that maybe our text in Luke 21, this passage, may have been George's life passage because he modeled his life after the widow in a really close way. You could put this under a microscope and see that George's worship was cruciform and risky. A great example to follow. What about you? Is your worship risky? Are you taking risks in your worship? I'm not saying that we all need to go home and sell everything we have and give it all away. I'm not saying that everyone here needs to go into the mission field, but we do take risks, just like how I was mentioning uh, about Doug and his wife. We, we all take risks. Some people aren't even willing to risk to come to church anymore. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. This widow took a great risk in giving all that she had. Are we ready and willing to follow her example? Are you ready to step into that gap that you know needs to be filled? Or are you just going to sit in the pew and try to anonymously show up and leave? Going back to that 80-20 rule, big risks and worship eradicates the 80-20. Eradicates it. Point number three, costly worship is compelling. Costly worship is compelling. You can't help but notice it when someone is paying a great price out of love for Christ. Can't help but notice it. That's what's happening here. Jesus notices the widow's costly worship because it's compelling to him. He's outside in the courtyard. He sees her in the treasury box. He says, look, would they have noticed a widow giving two copper coins? No, they probably had their eyes fixed on the rich giving out of their abundance. Jesus says, man, take a notice of her. He knows about her. He's the one that knows she's poverty stricken because he's God. He knows the heart. He knows what's in her heart. He knows that there is a selfless trusting in her heart that comes out of true sincerity. He's excited about that because it's compelling to him. She doesn't give because she thinks she's going to get a huge payoff down the road or because she wants to show off. No, no one shows off by giving a penny into the offering basket. If you did that, you might be mocked, not lauded with praise. She knows very well that this act may lead to very real suffering, but she has a willing heart, and she does it anyway. She is not focused on herself, but she's 100% focused on her object of worship, who is God. See, she's not thinking about what she's going to get out of coming to church this morning. That's not what is in her heart or in her mind. She has a cruciform heart. She shows up not to get, but to give it all away, and that is compelling. Now, we don't know what happens to the widow. 
Scripture doesn't tell us it's a cliffhanger. I hate that as a cliffhanger. I'm going to have to ask her when I see her, what happened to you? I want to know. I think that cliffhanger is there for a reason. It is there to push us into the arms of Christ, to trust him and to obey him. That's why that chapter is left unwritten. But what we do know, regardless of not knowing what happened to her, is that Jesus sees her because her worship is compelling. And that should be encouraging to us. There are plenty of people in my church, and I'm sure in this church, I've met some of you this morning, and in churches all over the world who are crucifying themselves in worship of Christ. It doesn't go unnoticed. Jesus sees you, Christian. He sees your compelling worship. The risen Lord sees you. He knows about your sacrifice. He knows about the decades of faithfulness. He knows about your love for him. He sees you. Be encouraged by that. Jesus sees the widow. He sees you. Your suffering is not in vain. Your frustrations are not in vain. Enduring church split after church split, church growth, church decline, new pastor, old pastor. You're still there. He sees you. I'm sure many of you can relate with what I'm saying. You're serving in the church in some obscure ministry or serving someone else outside the church, maybe a church member. No one else is around to see it. You're feeling alone. You're feeling tired. And you're wondering, why am I the only one doing this? Why am I the only one here right now? Where is everyone? I think that's typical. That is the Christian life. Suffering for costly worship comes most often to us when it's gift-wrapped in loneliness. We see that on the cross, and we can expect that. Jesus was alone. He was alone. Even his best friends deserted him. Even his father looked away. So we can expect to experience the loneliness of serving him. That's when we bank on the promises of God and remember the example of the widow, that your costly worship is compelling and Jesus takes notice. And not everything is done in the dark. Many aspects of worship are public. Everyone sees it. Everyone receives the fruit of it. We just went through that. And even many of the private aspects of worship that leave you feeling alone end up bearing fruit in public worship. You may have cleaned the building or set it up this morning by yourself, but everyone takes notice when they arrive and everything is in order. The bulletins are always where the bulletins are. Someone did that. I don't know who did it, but I bet you they do it every week with joy. You rehearse music by yourself, but everyone hears it when you play during service. You may have set up the sound and media by yourself. It looks like we got two folks back there. Nice. But you may have done it alone, but everybody receives the screens and the media and everybody listens to the, the, the recordings online and they receive the fruit of your worship. The point is this, we notice, and everyone typically knows who's paying the cost of worship. 
We see you when you give yourself tirelessly over to the ministry of the word and prayer. We see you when you open your homes again and again and while you serve in children's church and you open your homes to love your brothers and sisters, you lead busy households, you lead book studies, you're discipling others. We see your worship as you persevere through sickness, personal challenges. We see you when you fight for holiness. We see you charging hard for Christ. Your brothers and sisters see you. It's compelling. It's how we spur each other on in love. And just as I had mentioned earlier, I mean, let's, let's face it. Had Jesus not pointed out the costly worship of the widow to his disciples, she would have just blurred into obscurity. We wouldn't be talking about her right now. But he was compelled by it. And that means when no one else notices your compelling worship, Jesus takes notice because costly worship is compelling. Point number four, costly worship is unimpressive. It is unimpressive. Not always, but most often this is true, like the widow here in Luke 21. Of course, we see that first and foremost in the gospel. No one was impressed when Jesus went to the cross, when he was dying in agony. No one was impressed by that. People didn't understand it. It hadn't been revealed to them. The Holy Spirit had not come. They were still trying to piece it together, and no one was impressed, at least not at first. He was all alone, totally forsaken, abandoned by everyone, And as we see in the example of the widow, costly worship is not defined by the size of your checkbook, but it's about what's left over in the tank after you give your all. I think the worship of most Christians looks most like the worship of of this obscure widow when compared to the high-profile, maybe celebrity Christians that we all know about. Everybody follows different folks. You know, there are celebrity authors, celebrity podcasters. There are folks who are wealthy and they can bankroll ministries, right? All of those things are, are good. They're just not the norm. The worship of the regular Christian just doesn't look very impressive, but it looks more like the cross. It looks more like point number one. It's cruciform, the daily burden of ministry, whether that's in the church or at home with your family and friends, or at work, or in your evangelism, as much as it may cost you, it's just not very impressive. Most people people won't see your burden, and that can make us sad, especially when things don't go as we hoped, or when we don't reach the potential that we had first hoped for ourselves. especially hard when our sacrifices go unnoticed. They can be hard to endure because the heart, whether we want to admit it or not, the heart longs for recognition. We want, we want to be recognized. And maybe the widow went home and spent her final days hungry and alone and suffering with no one to help her and no one to see what was happening to her. How would she have felt? No one noticed that I gave away my two last copper coins. Here I am, alone, 
suffering. That could have happened. We don't know. The point is this. Ministry in life and in church can be a lonely place. And when we don't get that recognition that we feel we deserve or want, it can make us very sad and melancholy and even tempt us into despair. This is true for many pastors I know and elders that I know. It's true for many parents that I know with little ones. You have your ministry to your little ones in the gospel. That is a real Christian ministry. Do not, be, do not mistake it. And it is hard. And no one sees you when you're at your worst. And they will bring the worst out in you. And you have to persevere through that. You have to somehow show them the kindness and patience and mercy of the gospel because that is what God has extended to you. So we, we have our suffering. Every church member experiences this in one form or fashion. And when we do, this is the encouraging and correcting text for times like that. We come to the widow. We see her worship is compelling, and we remember that Jesus sees it. And he is impressed. I think that he's impressed by the widow giving her all. I'm convinced of that. You know, you can go read these four verses later in your private time and think about that question, but I am convinced he's impressed in the same way that he marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion in Luke 7. Remember that story? The Roman centurion has a servant who is sick and dying. And this this isn't any servant, this servant whom he loves. He loves this servant. So he sends his other servants to find Jesus, to send for him, to come heal his servant. He knows he's got faith. He's got a faith. He says, I know Jesus can heal my servant. He sends off his other servants. They find Jesus, and Jesus agrees to come. But something strange happens. While Jesus is on the way, he sends more servants to tell him not to come. What happened to this man in that time? I'd like to think he was converted. I want to see him so I can ask him, what happened to you? that you would send Jesus not to come. All of a sudden, he realizes, he says, I'm not unworthy to have the Lord in my home. And he realizes that he is a man of authority. He understood authority, and that meant he understood that if Jesus just gave the command wherever he was, then his servant would be healed right there and then, and it was so, and that's how it happened. She was, his servant was healed in the very moment And Jesus, the Bible says, he marveled at this man's faith. He marveled at this man's faith. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he had never seen such faith, and he takes notice of it. And why? What is the similarity with the widow here in Luke 21? Well, the Roman soldier is offering compelling worship. It's compelling Because he's taking a big risk. He's risking the life. He's putting the life of the servant whom he loves into the hands of Jesus by faith. Jesus, don't come. I was wrong. You're not, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. Imagine doing that. Imagine now you're the one. You have a child who's dying. Your beloved child. Imagine taking that kind of risk in faith. It's compelling. It's compelling when we see it. 
In the same way, Jesus stops and takes notice of the widow's great sacrifice. As unimpressive as it seems to the outside world, and that would have been understandable. Again, no one is impressed when someone drops a single penny into the basket. Again, in verse 2, Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, light mites, leptin. Two of them would have been worth one-eighth of a penny. You have to have 16 leptins to make a penny. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is impressed by that. Why? It's compelling, as unimpressive as it is. Jesus takes notice of this. He loves what's in her heart. The amount is immaterial to the whole entire narrative. This is not about rich versus poor. This is not about correcting the rich. It's about pursuing the kind of heart this widow is showing us by faith. That's what really matters. That's what Jesus wants from us. And so he notices your unimpressive worship when you give it because it's the heart behind it that matters to him. That's what makes the difference in the eyes of our Savior, which leads us to our fifth and final point. Costly worship makes a difference. Costly worship makes a difference. One-eighth of a penny makes a difference. This woman had one-eighth of a penny left to her name, and she did two things. First, she showed up, and second, she gave it all away. And because she took these two simple actions, it's recorded and captured in Scripture for all of an eternity. You see that? I hope that really grips your heart. How something so seemingly insignificant and mundane can bear the extraordinary and bear eternal fruit for God. These words will never change. They will go on forever. This is not just a story for us on this side of the cross. It is captured in the eternal word of God which goes on forever. We will be praising God to these words with the widow into eternity. So that's easy to miss, I think, if you're not paying close. I I read through my Bible quickly. You know, I miss things. That's an easy one to miss. She showed up. She was present. She went to church. She was at the temple. How often do you, like, oh, man, Saturday, the week was so long. I just need to sleep, snooze, 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 snooze. Church is coming and gone. You spend the rest of the day, you know, surfing uh, the TV on the couch, on your favorite chair, right? Not this woman. She showed up, and it made an eternal difference. Now, maybe this woman lived in Jerusalem. Maybe she traveled a great distance to get there. The week of the Passover was at hand. It, it was coming. So many, many people were flocking to Jerusalem, and she wasn't going to be left out. She was not going to be left out. Is that you, Christian? Is that how you think and feel when you woke up this morning? 
Were you ready to go to the house of God and worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ? That's the difference showing up can make. Just showing up. An eternal difference recorded in the very word of God. So the next time you think that showing up doesn't matter or won't make a difference, think again and come back to the widow and her two copper coins and remember that her sacrifice made an eternal difference. I say this all the time to my home church. But your presence, the fact that you are here looking at me and I'm proclaiming the gospel through preaching, your presence ministers to me. I am so glad you are here. And your presence makes a difference to my soul. It ministers to your elders It ministers to others around you when you show up. You just need to show up. That's why there is a natural encouragement when the the pews are full, when there's souls in the seats, right? Everybody knows there's a natural encouragement when the temple is full, when the rich and the poor alike and every people from every tribe and of every tongue are worshiping together. When the house is full, we are naturally encouraged. The second thing that the widow did that made an eternal difference is she gave it all away. Her two copper coins, her one-eighth of a penny, that's it. Your one-eighth of a penny makes a difference in the eyes of the Lord so long as the heart behind it is sincere. Is sincere toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be sitting here saying to yourself, I don't have anything to give. There are people close to me, near and dear to me, that don't believe they have anything to give. Come and read about the widow if you think you've got nothing to give. And look at her one-eighth of a penny. Look at her showing up, and you tell me, did it make a difference? Maybe you don't have the kind of giftedness you hope to have. Maybe you wanted like cool public ministry gifts that you don't have, you wished you had. Or maybe you don't have any money and you think, oh, you know, whatever I give, it doesn't really matter anyway. You know, if that's you, just remember the widow showed up, dropped in two copper coins, and it, it's going to last forever, man. It's going to last forever. Now, it might not seem like much to the outside world, right? It's not. I don't think the world is impressed by the church. I don't think anybody looking at the widow would have been impressed by her. But to us, it is the power of God. We are participating in a miracle, and everyone has a place and role to play in this miracle that we call the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the miracle of the body in Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Well, you are a member of the body, Christian. 
You have gifts that differ from everyone else. You are unique to this body. And the body functions at peak performance when all of its members are together as one body where each member brings that unique function. So don't listen to the lie that your ministry doesn't matter because we are the body. The head needs the foot. The arm needs the hand. The eyes need the ears. We need each other. Showing up ministers, just as I said before, because the body needs all of its parts to function properly, does it not? Isn't this common knowledge? We all have bodies. The smallest part breaking down can be catastrophic. Sickness can be catastrophic and lead to death. The body breaks down, it dies. I've got arthritis in my ring finger knuckle. I had to take off my wedding ring several weeks ago. It just won't go away. I can't get my ring back over it. But it hurts. Look at knuckles. When's the last time you thought about how important your knuckle is? You don't realize how important the knuckle is. You don't think the the knuckle is important until it doesn't work and it hurts. The body functions in the same way. We're members of one another. When members disappear, the body breaks down. But when we show up together, she functions at her fullest And all of her contributions together bear great fruit for God. So look and remember what a difference it can make when you show up and drop in two copper coins. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise that we have this example here in Scripture to model to one another as we look to your son, Christ Jesus, who paid it all that we might live. So, Father, open up our hearts to receive your word. Rest your spirit on your people here in this way that we might be changed, edified, and sanctified to the glory of your precious name, for it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.